Chapter One, Part Three, of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The Mississippi Scheme, Part 3. Thus the system continued to flourish till the commencement of the year 1720. The warnings of the Parliament, that too great a creation of paper money would, sooner or later, bring the country to bankruptcy, were disregarded. The Regent, who knew nothing whatever of the philosophy of finance, thought that a system which had produced such good effects could never be carried to excess. If five hundred millions of paper had been of such advantage, five hundred millions additional would be of still greater advantage. This was the grand error of the regent, and which law did not attempt to dispel. The extraordinary avidity of the people kept up the delusion, and the higher the price of Indian and Mississippi stock, the more billets de banque were issued to keep pace with it. The edifice thus reared might not unaptly be compared to the gorgeous palace erected by Potemkin, that princely barbarian of Russia, to surprise and please his imperial mistress. Huge blocks of ice were piled one upon another. Iconic pillars of chastest workmanship in ice formed a noble portico, and a dome of the same material shone in the sun which had just strength enough to gild, but not to melt it. It glittered afar, like a palace of crystals and diamonds, but there came one warm breeze from the south, and the stately building dissolved away, till none were able even to gather up the fragments. So with Law and his paper system. No sooner did the breath of popular mistrust blow steadily upon it, than it fell to ruins, and none could raise it up again. The first slight alarm that was occasioned was early in 1720. The Prince de Conti, offended that Law should have denied him fresh shares in India stock at his own price, sent to his bank to demand payment in specie of so enormous a quantity of notes that three wagons were required for its transport. Law complained to the Regent, and urged on his attention the mischief that would be done if such an example found many imitators. The Regent was but too well aware of it, and sending for the Prince de Conti, ordered him, under penalty of his high displeasure, to refund to the bank two-thirds of the specie which he had withdrawn from it. The Prince was forced to obey the despotic mandate. Happily for Law's credit, de Conti was an unpopular man. Everybody condemned his meanness and cupidity, and agreed that Law had been hardly treated. It is strange, however, that so narrow an escape should not have made both law and the regent more anxious to restrict their issues. Others were soon found who imitated, from motives of distrust, the example which had been set by de Conti in revenge. The more acute stock-jobbers imagined justly that prices could not continue to rise forever. Bourdon and La Richardière, renowned for their extensive operations in the funds, quietly and in small quantities at a time, converted their notes into specie, and sent it away to foreign countries. They also bought as much as they could conveniently carry of plate and expensive jewellery, and sent it secretly away to England or to Holland. Vermelet, a jobber who sniffed the coming storm, 
procured gold and silver coin to the amount of nearly a million livres, which he packed in a farmer's cart, and covered over with hay and cow-dung. He then disguised himself in the dirty smoke-frock or blouse of a peasant, and drove his precious load in safety into Belgium. From thence he soon found means to transport it to Amsterdam. Hitherto no difficulty had been experienced by any class in procuring specie for their wants. But this system could not long be carried on without causing a scarcity. The voice of complaint was heard on every side, and inquiries being instituted, the cause was soon discovered. The council debated long on the remedies to be taken, and Law, being called on for his advice, was of an opinion that an edict should be published, depreciating the value of coin five per cent below that of paper. The edict was published accordingly, but failing of its intended effect, was followed by another, in which the depreciation was increased to ten per cent. The payments of the bank were at the same time restricted to one hundred livres in gold and ten in silver. All these measures were nugatory to restore confidence in the paper, though the restriction of cash payments within limits so extremely narrow kept up the credit of the bank. Notwithstanding every effort to the contrary, the precious metals continued to be conveyed to England and Holland. The little coin that was left in the country was carefully treasured, or hidden until the scarcity became so great that the operations of trade could no longer be carried on. In this emergency, Law hazarded the bold experiment of forbidding the use of specie altogether. In February 1720, an edict was published, which instead of restoring the credit of the paper, as was intended, destroyed it irrevocably and drove the country to the very brink of revolution. By this famous edict it was forbidden to any person whatever to have more than five hundred livres, twenty pounds, of coin in his possession, under pain of a heavy fine, and confiscation of the sums found. It was also forbidden to buy up jewellery, plate, and precious stones, and informers were encouraged to make search for offenders by the promise of one-half the amount they might discover. The whole country set up a cry of distress at this unheard-of tyranny the most odious persecution daily took place. The privacy of families was violated by the intrusion of informers and their agents. The most virtuous and honest were denounced for the crime of having been seen with a louis d'or in their possession. Servants betrayed their masters, one citizen became a spy upon his neighbour, and arrests and confiscations so multiplied that the courts found a difficulty in getting through the immense increase of business thus occasioned. It was sufficient for an informer to say that he suspected any person of concealing money in his house, and immediately a search warrant was granted. Lord Stair, the English ambassador, said that it was now impossible to doubt the sincerity of Law's conversion to the Catholic religion. He had established the Inquisition, after having given an abundant evidence of his faith in transubstantiation, by turning so much gold into paper. Every epithet that popular hatred could suggest was showered upon the regent and the unhappy Law. Coin, to any amount above five hundred livres, was an illegal tender, and nobody would take paper if he could help it. No one knew to-day what his notes would be worth to-morrow. Never, said Duclos, in his secret memoirs of the Regency, was seen a more capricious government. Never was a more frantic tyranny exercised by hands less firm. It is inconceivable to those who were witnesses of the horrors of those times, and who look back upon them now as on a dream, that a sudden revolution did not break out, that law and the regent did not perish by a tragical death. 
They were both held in horror, but the people confined themselves to complaints. A sombre and timid despair, a stupid consternation had seized upon all, and men's minds were too vile even to be capable of a courageous crime. It would appear that, at one time, a movement of the people was organised. Seditious writings were posted up against the walls and were sent in handbills to the houses of the most conspicuous people. One of them, given in the Memoir de la Régence, was to the following effect. Sir and Madam, this is to give you notice that a St. Bartholomew's Day will be enacted again on Saturday and Sunday if affairs do not alter. You are desired not to stir out, nor you, nor your servants. God preserve you from the flames. Give notice to your neighbours, dated Saturday, May the 25th, 1720. The immense number of spies with which the city was infested rendered the people mistrustful of one another, and beyond some trifling disturbances made in the evening by an insignificant group, which was soon dispersed, the peace of the capital was not compromised. The value of shares in the Louisiana or Mississippi stock had fallen very rapidly, and few indeed were found to believe the tales that had once been told of the immense wealth of that region. A last effort was therefore tried to restore the public confidence in the Mississippi project. For this purpose, a general conscription of all the poor wretches in Paris was made by order of government. Upwards of six thousand of the very refuse of the population were impressed, as if in time of war, and were provided with clothes and tools to be embarked for New Orleans, to work in the gold mines alleged to abound there. They were paraded day after day through the streets with their pikes and shovels, and then sent off in small detachments to the outports to be shipped for America. Two-thirds of them never reached their destination, but dispersed themselves over the country, sold their tools for what they could get, and returned to their old course of life. In less than three weeks afterwards, one half of them were to be found again in Paris. The manoeuvre, however, caused a trifling advance in Mississippi stock. Many persons of superabundant gullibility believed that operations had begun in earnest in the new Golconda, and that gold and silver ingots would again be found in France. In a constitutional monarchy some surer means would have been found for the restoration of public credit. In England, at a subsequent period, when a similar delusion had brought on similar distress, how different were the measures taken to repair the evil. But in France, unfortunately, the remedy was left to the authors of the mischief. The arbitrary will of the regent, which endeavoured to extricate the country, only plunged it deeper into the mire. All payments were ordered to be made in paper, and between the 1st of February and the end of May, notes were fabricated to the amount of upwards of, of 1,500 millions of livres, or 60 million pounds sterling. But the alarm once sounded, no art could make the people feel the slightest confidence in paper which was not exchangeable into metal. M. Lambert, the President of the Parliament of Paris, told the Regent to his face that he would rather have a hundred thousand livres in gold or silver than five millions in the notes of his bank. When such was the general feeling, the superabundant issues of paper but increased the evil by rendering still more enormous the disparity between the amount of specie and notes in circulation. Coin, which it was the object of the Regent to depreciate, rose in value on every French attempt to diminish it. In February it was judged advisable that the Royal Bank should be incorporated with the Company of the Indies. An edict to that effect was published and registered by the Parliament. The State remained the guarantee for the notes of the Bank, and no more were to be issued without an order in Council. 
all the profits of the bank, since the time it had been taken out of law's hands and made a national institution, were given over by the regent to the Company of the Indies. This measure had the effect of raising for a short time the value of the Louisiana and the other shares of the company, but it failed in placing public credit on any permanent basis. A council of state was held in the beginning of May, at which law, d'Argenson, his colleague in the administration of the finances, and all the ministers were present. It was then computed that the total amount of notes in circulation was 260,000 millions of livres, while the coin in the country was not quite equal to half that amount. It was evident to the majority of the council that some plan must be adopted to equalise the currency. Some proposed that the notes should be reduced to the value of the specie, while others proposed that the nominal value of the specie should be raised till it was on an equality with the paper. Law is said to have been opposed to both these projects, but failing in suggesting any other, it was agreed that the notes should be depreciated one-half. On the 21st of May, an edict was accordingly issued by which it was decreed that the shares of the Company of the Indies and the notes of the bank should gradually diminish in value till at the end of a year they should only pass current for one and a half of their nominal worth. The Parliament refused to register the edict. The greatest outcry was excited, and the state of the country became so alarming that as the only means of preserving tranquillity, the Council of the Regency was obliged to stultify its own proceedings by publishing within seven days another edict, restoring the notes to their original value. On the same day, the 27th of May, the bank stopped payment in specie. Law and D'Argenson were both dismissed from the ministry. The weak, vacillating and cowardly regent threw the blame of the mischief upon Law, who upon presenting himself at the Palais Royal was refused admittance. At nightfall, however, he was sent for and admitted into the palace by a secret door, when the regent endeavoured to console him and made all manner of excuses for the severity with which in public he had been compelled to treat him. So capricious was his conduct that, two days afterwards, he took him publicly to the opera, where he sat in the royal box alongside of the regent, who treated him with marked consideration in face of all the people. But such was the hatred against law, that the experiment had well-nigh proved fatal to him. The mob assailed his carriage with stones just as he was entering his own door, and if the coachman had not made a sudden jerk into the courtyard, and the domestics closed the gate immediately, he would in all probability have been dragged out and torn to pieces. On the following day his wife and daughter were also assailed by the mob as they were returning in their carriage from the races. When the regent was informed of these occurrences he sent law a strong detachment of Swiss guards, who were stationed night and day in the court of his residence. The public indignation at last increased so much that Law, finding his own house, even with this guard, insecure, took refuge in the Palais Royal in the apartments of the regent. The Chancellor, D'Agesso, who had been dismissed in 1718 for his opposition to the projects of Law, was now recalled to aid in the restoration of credit. The regent acknowledged too late that he had treated with unjustifiable harshness and mistrust one of the ablest and perhaps the sole honest public man of that corrupt period. He had retired ever since his disgrace to his country house at Fresen, where in the midst of severe but delightful philosophic studies he had forgotten the intrigues of an unworthy court. Law himself, and the Chevalier de Conflans, a gentleman of the regent's household, were dispatched in a post-chaise with orders to bring the ex-chancellor to Paris along with them. D'Agesso consented to render what assistance he could, 
contrary to the advice of his friends, who did not approve that he should accept any recall to office of which law was the bearer. On his arrival in Paris, five councillors of the Parliament were admitted to confer with the Commissary of France, and on the 1st of June an order was published abolishing the law which made it criminal to amass coin to the amount of more than 500 livres. Every one was permitted to have as much specie as he pleased. In order that the bank notes might be withdrawn, 25 millions of new notes were created, on the security of the revenues of the city of Paris at 2.5%. The bank notes withdrawn were publicly burned in front of the Hotel de Ville. The new notes were principally of the value of 10 livres each, and on the 10th of June the bank was reopened, with a sufficiency of silver coin to give in change for them. These measures were productive of considerable advantage. All the population of Paris hastened to the bank to get coin for their small notes, and silver becoming scarce, they were paid in copper. Very few complained that this was too heavy, although poor fellows might be continually seen toiling and sweating along the streets, laden with more than they could comfortably carry, in the shape of change for fifty livres. The crowds around the bank were so great that hardly a day passed that someone was not pressed to death. On the ninth of July the multitude was so dense and clamorous that the guards stationed at the entrance of the Mazarin Gardens closed the gate and refused to admit any more. The crowd became incensed and flung stones through the railings upon the soldiers. The latter, incensed in their turn, threatened to fire upon the people. At that instant one of them was hit by a stone and, taking up his piece, he fired into the crowd. One man fell dead immediately and another was severely wounded. It was every instant expected that a general attack would have been commenced upon the bank, but the gates of the Mazarin Gardens being open to the crowd, who saw a whole troop of soldiers with their bayonets fixed ready to receive them, they contented themselves by giving vent to their indignation in groans and hisses. Eight days afterwards the concourse of people was so tremendous that fifteen persons were squeezed to death at the doors of the bank. The people were so indignant that they took three of the bodies on stretchers before them and proceeded to the number of seven or eight thousand to the gardens of the Palais Royal that they might show the regent the misfortunes that he and Law had brought upon the country. Law's coachman, who was sitting at the box of his master's carriage in the courtyard of the palace, happened to have more zeal than discretion, and not liking that the mob should abuse his master, he said loud enough to be overheard by several persons that they were all blackguards and deserved to be hanged. The mob immediately set upon him, and thinking that Law was in the carriage, broke it to pieces. The imprudent coachman narrowly escaped with his life. No further mischief was done. A body of troops making their appearance, the crowd quietly dispersed, after an assurance had been given by the regent that the three bodies they had brought to show him should be decently buried at his own expense. The Parliament was sitting at the time of this uproar, and the President took upon himself to go out and see what was the matter. On his return he informed the councillors that Law's carriage had been broken by the mob. All the members rose simultaneously and expressed their joy by a loud shout, while one man, more zealous in his hatred than the rest, exclaimed, And Law himself, is he torn to pieces? Note 13. The Duchess of Orléans gives a different version of this story but whichever be the true one, the manifestation of such feeling in a legislative assembly was not very creditable. She says that the President was so transported with joy that he was seized with a rhyming fit, and returning to the hall, exclaimed to the members, Messieurs, Messieurs, bonne nouvelle, le carrosse de l'as est réduit en canelle. 
much undoubtedly depended on the credit of the Company of the Indies, which was answerable for so great a sum to the nation. It was therefore suggested in the Council of the Ministry that any privileges which could be granted to enable it to fulfil its engagements would be productive of the best results. With this end in view, it was proposed that the exclusive privilege of all maritime commerce should be secured to it, and an edict to that effect was published. But it was unfortunately forgotten that by such a measure all the merchants of the country would be ruined. The idea of such an immense privilege was generally scouted by the nation, and petition on petition was presented to the Parliament that they would refuse to register the decree. They refused accordingly, and the regent, remarking that they did nothing but fan the flames of sedition, exiled them to Blois. At the intercession of Dagestel, the place of banishment was changed to Pontoise, and thither, accordingly, the councillors repaired, determined to set the regent at defiance. They made every arrangement for rendering their temporary exile as agreeable as possible. The president gave the most elegant suppers, to which he invited all the gay and wittiest company of Paris. Every night there was a concert and ball for the ladies. The usually grave and solemn judges and counsellors joined in cards and other diversions, leading for several weeks a life of the most extravagant pleasure, for no other purpose than to show the regent of how little consequence they deemed their banishment, and that when they willed it, they could make Pontoise a pleasanter residence than Paris. Of all the nations in the world, the French are the most renowned for singing over their grievances. Of that country it has been remarked with some truth that its whole history may be traced in its songs. When Law, by the utter failure of his best-laid plans, rendered himself obnoxious, satire, of course, seized hold upon him, and while caricatures of his person appeared in all the shops, the streets resounded with songs in which neither he nor the regent was spared. Many of these songs were far from decent, and one of them in particular counselled the application of all his notes to the most ignoble use to which paper can be applied. But the following, preserved in the letters of the Duchess of Orléans, was the best and the most popular, and was to be heard for months in all the carrefour in Paris. The application of the chorus is happy enough. Aussitôt que la arriva dans notre bon ville, Monsieur la région publia que la sera utile pour rétablir la nation. La farindondin, la farindondin, mais il nous a tout enrichi. Biri biri, à la facon de barbarie, mon ami, c'est papillon pour attirer. Tout l'argent de la France s'engage d'abord à s'assurer de notre confiance. Il fit son abjuration, la farindondin, la farindondin, mais le faube s'est converti. Biri biri, à la facon de barbarie, Mon ami, las le fille al nez de Satan. Nous mettons à l'aumont, il nous a pris tout notre argent et non rende à personne. Mais la région, humaine est bonne, la fin d'ondin, la fin d'ondin, nous rendra ce qu'on nous a pris. Biribiri, à la facon de Barbarie, mon ami. The following epigram is of the same date. Lundi, j'achetai des actions. Mardi, je gagne des millions. Mercredi, j'arrangeai mon ménage. Jeudi, je pris un équipage. Vendredi, je m'enfuis à bol. Et samedi, à l'hôpital. Among the caricatures that were abundantly published, and that showed as plainly as graver matters that the nation had awakened to a sense of its folly, was one, a facsimile of which is preserved in the Memoir de la Régence. 
It was thus described by its author, the goddess of shares, in her triumphal car, driven by the goddess of folly. Those who are drawing the car are impersonations of the Mississippi with his wooden leg, the South Sea, the Bank of England, the Company of the West of Senegal, and of various assurances. Lest the car should not roll fast enough, the agents of these companies, known by their long fox-tails and their cunning looks, turn round the spokes of the wheels upon which are marked the names of the several stocks and their value, sometimes high and sometimes low, according to the turns of the wheel. Upon the ground are the merchandise, day-books and ledgers of legitimate commerce, crushed under the chariot of folly. Behind is an immense crowd of persons of all ages, sexes and conditions, clamouring after fortune, and fighting with each other to get a portion of the shares which she distributes so bountifully among them. In the clouds sits a demon, blowing bubbles of soap, which are also the objects of the admiration and cupidity of the crowd, who jump upon one another's backs to reach them ere they burst. Right in the pathway of the car, and blocking up the passage, stands a large building, with three doors, through one of which it must pass if it proceeds farther, and all the crowd along with it. Over the first door are the words, Hôpital des Fous, over the second, Hôpital des Malades, and over the third, Hôpital des Gueurs. Another caricature represented Law sitting in a large cauldron, boiling over the flames of popular madness, surrounded by an impetuous multitude who were pouring all their gold and silver into it, and receiving gladly in exchange the bits of paper which he distributed among them by handfuls. While this excitement lasted, Law took great care not to expose himself unguarded in the streets. Shut up in the apartments of the regent, he was secure from all attack, and whenever he ventured abroad it was either incognito, or in one of the royal carriages with a powerful escort. An amusing anecdote is recorded of the detestation in which he was held by the people, and the ill-treatment he would have met had he fallen into their hands. A gentleman of the name of Bursal was passing in his carriage down the Rue de Saint-Antoine, when his farther progress was stayed by a hackney-coach that had blocked up the road. Monsieur Bursal's servant called impatiently to the hackney-coachman to get out of the way, and on his refusal struck him a blow on the face. A crowd was soon drawn together by the disturbance, and Monsieur Borsell got out of the carriage to restore order. The hackney-coachman, imagining that he had now another assailant, bethought him of an expedient to rid himself of both, and called out as loudly as he was able, "'Help! Help! Murder! Murder! Here are Law and his servant going to kill me! Help! Help!' At this cry the people came out of their shops, armed with sticks and other weapons, while the mob gathered stones to inflict summary vengeance upon the supposed financier. Happily for Monsieur Bursal and his servant, the door of the church of the Jesuits stood wide open, and seeing the fearful odds against them, they rushed towards it with all speed. They reached the altar, pursued by the people, and would have been ill-treated even there, if, finding the door open leading to the sacristy, they had not sprang through and closed it after them. The mob were then persuaded to leave the church by the alarmed and indignant priests, and finding Monsieur Borsal's carriage still in the streets, they vented their ill-will against it, and did it considerable damage. The twenty-five millions secured on the municipal revenues of the city of Paris, bearing so low an interest as two and a half per cent, were not very popular among the large holders of Mississippi stock. 
The conversion of the securities was, therefore, a work of considerable difficulty, for many preferred to retain the falling paper of Law's company in the hope that a favourable turn might take place. On the 15th of August, with a view to hasten the conversion, an edict was passed, declaring that all notes for sums between 1,000 and 10,000 livres should not pass current, except for the purchase of annuities and bank accounts, or for the payment of instalments still due on the shares of the company. In October following, another edict was passed, depriving these notes of all value whatever after the month of November next evening. The management of the mint, the farming of the revenue, and all the other advantages and privileges of the India or Mississippi Company were taken from them, and they were reduced to a mere private company. This was the death-blow to the whole system, which had now got into the hands of his, its enemies. Law had lost all influence in the Council of Finance, and the company, being despoiled of its immunities, could no longer hold out the shadow of a prospect of being able to fulfil its engagements. All those suspected of illegal profits at the time the public delusion was at its height were sought out and immersed in heavy fines. It was previously ordered that a list of the original proprietors should be made out, and that such persons as still retained their shares should place them in deposit with the company, and that those who had neglected to complete the shares for which they had put down their names should now purchase them of the company at the rate of 13,500 livres for each share of 500 livres. Rather than submit to pay this enormous sum of stock which was actually at a discount, the shareholders packed up all their portable effects and endeavoured to find a refuge in foreign countries. Orders were immediately issued to the authorities at the ports and frontiers to apprehend all travellers who sought to leave the kingdom and keep them in custody, until it were ascertained whether they had any plate or jewellery with them, or were concerned in the late stock jobbing. Against such few as escaped, the punishment of death was recorded, while the most arbitrary proceedings were instituted against those who remained. Law himself, in a moment of despair, determined to leave a country where his life was no longer secure. He at first only demanded permission to retire from Paris to one of his country seats, a permission which the regent cheerfully granted. The latter was much affected at the unhappy turn affairs had taken, but his faith continued unmoved in the truth and efficacy of Law's financial system. His eyes were opened to his own errors, and during the few remaining years of his life he constantly longed for an opportunity of again establishing the system upon a secure basis. At Law's last interview with the Prince he is reported to have said, I confess that I have committed many faults. I committed them because I am a man, and all men are liable to error. But I declare to you most solemnly that none of them proceeded from wicked or dishonest motives, and that nothing of the kind will be found in the whole course of my conduct. Two or three days after his departure the regent sent him a very kind letter, permitting him to leave the kingdom whenever he pleased, and stating that he had ordered his passports to be made ready. He at the same time offered him any sum of money he might require. Law respectfully declined the money and set out for Brussels in a post-chaise belonging to the Madame de Prier the mistress of the Duke of Bourbon, escorted by six horse-guards. From thence he proceeded to Venice, where he remained for some months, the object of the greatest curiosity to the people, who believed him to be the possessor of enormous wealth. No opinion, however, could be more erroneous. With more generosity than could have been expected from a man who during the greatest part of his life had been a professed gambler, he had refused to enrich himself at the expense of a ruined nation. During the height of the popular frenzy for Mississippi stock, he had never doubted of the final success of his projects in making France the richest and most powerful nation of Europe. He invested all his gains in the purchase of landed property in France, 
a sure proof of his own belief in the stability of his schemes. He had hoarded no plate or jewellery, and sent no money, like the dishonest jobbers, to foreign countries. His all, with the exception of one diamond, worth about five or six thousand pounds sterling, was invested in the French soil, and when he left that country he left it almost a beggar. The fact alone ought to rescue his memory from the charge of knaveries so often and so unjustly brought against him. As soon as his departure was known, all his estates and his valuable library were confiscated. Among the rest, an annuity of two hundred thousand livres, eight thousand pounds sterling, on the lives of his wife and children, which had been purchased for five millions of livres, was forfeited, notwithstanding that a special edict, drawn up for the purpose in the days of his prosperity, had expressly declared that it should never be confiscated for any cause whatever. Great discontent existed among the people that law had been suffered to escape. The mob and the Parliament would have been pleased to have seen him hanged. The few who had not suffered by the commercial revolution rejoiced that the quack had left the country, but all those, and they were by far the numerous class whose fortunes were implicated, regretted that his intimate knowledge of the distress of the country, and of the causes that had led to it, had not been rendered more available in discovering a remedy. At a meeting of the Council of Finance and the General Council of the Regency, documents were laid upon the table from which it appeared that the amount of notes in circulation was 2,700 millions. The Regent was called upon to explain how it happened that there was a discrepancy between the dates at which these issues were made and those of the edicts by which they were authorised. He might have safely taken the whole blame upon himself, but he preferred that an absent man should bear a share of it, and he therefore stated that law, upon his own authority, had issued 1,200 millions of notes at different times, and that he, the regent, seeing that the thing had been irrevocably done, had screened law by antedating the decrees of the council which authorised the augmentation. It would have been more to his credit if he had told the whole truth while he was about it, and acknowledged that it was mainly through his extravagance and impatience that law had been induced to overstep the bounds of safe speculation. It was also ascertained that the national debt, on the 1st of January 1721, amounted to upwards of 3,100 millions of livres, or more than a hundred and twenty-four million pounds sterling, the interest upon which was three million one hundred and ninety-six thousand pounds. A commission, or visa, was forthwith appointed to examine into all the securities of the state creditors who were to be divided into five classes, the first four comprising those who had purchased their securities with real effects, and the latter comprising those who could give no proofs that the transactions they had entered into were real and bona fide. The securities of the latter were ordered to be destroyed, while those of the first four classes were subjected to the most rigid and jealous scrutiny. The result of the labours of the visa was a report, in which they counselled the reduction of the interest upon these securities to fifty-six millions of livres. They justified this advice by a statement of the various acts of peculation and extortion which they had discovered, and an edict to that effect was accordingly published and duly registered by the parliaments of the kingdom. Another tribunal was afterwards established, under the title of the Chambre de l'Arsenal, which took cognizance of all the malversations committed in the financial departments of the government during the late unhappy period. A master of requests, named Falhonet, together with the Abbé Clément and two clerks in their employ, had been concerned in diverse acts of peculation to the amount of upwards of a million of livres. The first two were sentenced to be beheaded, and the latter to be hanged but their punishment was afterwards commuted into imprisonment for life in the Bastille. 
numerous other acts of dishonesty were discovered and punished by fine and imprisonment. D'Argentsant shared with Law and the Regent the unpopularity which had alighted upon all those concerned in the Mississippi madness. He was dismissed from his post of Chancellor to make room for Dagesso, but he retained the title of Keeper of the Seals and was allowed to attend the councils whenever he pleased. He thought it better, however, to withdraw from Paris and live for a time the life of seclusion at his country seat, but he was not formed for retirement, and becoming moody and discontented, he aggravated a disease under which he had long laboured, and died in less than a twelve-month. The populace of Paris so detested him that they carried their hatred even to his grave. As his funeral procession passed to the church of Saint-Nicolas du Chardonnere, the burying-place of his family, it was beset by a riotous mob and his two sons, who were following as chief mourners, were obliged to drive as fast as they were able down a by-street to escape personal violence. As regards law, he for some time entertained a hope that he should be recalled to France, to aid in establishing its credit upon a firmer basis. The death of the regent in 1723, who expired suddenly as he was sitting by the fireside conversing with his mistress, the Duchess de Fallery, deprived him of that hope, and he was reduced to lead his former life of gambling. He was more than once obliged to pawn his diamond, the sole remnant of his vast wealth, but successful play generally enabled him to redeem it. Being persecuted by his creditors at Rome, he proceeded to Copenhagen, where he received permission from the English ministry to reside in his native country, his pardon for the murder of Mr. Wilson having been sent over to him in 1719. He was brought over in the Admiral's ship, a circumstance which gave occasion for a short debate in the House of Lords. Earl Coningsby complained that a man who had renounced both his country and his religion should have been treated with such honour, and expressed his belief that his presence in England, at a time when the people were so bewildered by the nefarious practices of the South Sea directors, would be attended with no little danger. He gave notice of a motion on the subject, but it was allowed to drop, no other member of the House having the slightest participation in his lordship's fears. Law remained for about four years in England, and then proceeded to Venice, where he died in 1729 in very embarrassed circumstances. The following epitaph was written at the time. Si j'y c'est écossant célèbre, c'est calculateur sans égal. De algebra a mis la France à l'hôpital. His brother, William Law, who had been concerned with him in the administration both of the bank and the Louisiana Company, was imprisoned in the Bastille for alleged malversation, but no guilt was ever proven against him. He was liberated after fifteen months, and became the founder of a family, which is still known in France under the title of Marquises de Lauriston. In the next chamber will be found an account of the madness which infected the people of England at the same time, and under very similar circumstances, but which, thanks to the energies and good sense of a constitutional government, was attended with results far less disastrous than those which were seen in France. End of chapter 1, part 3